Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you, like me, adore nature and seeing it clearer, then Leica are a company you should totally check out. With over 100 years of knowledge and experience, Leica's optical systems are well designed to bring you closer to the wonders of nature. The binoculars I went with this month were the Trinovid HDs. With such a wide array of uses, the Trinovids combine a high definition performance, incredible mechanical features, and on top of that, they are dead easy to use. For me, using the Trinovids is like having HD TV for my eyes. And now, on with the show. Over the last 12 months, we've all appreciated nature more, and many of us have been documenting it, whether that be on a DLSR camera or the camera on our phones. But wildlife photography is so much more. I always wondered how people get fully into it. How does it become a job? What are the highs and what are the challenges? On this episode, I find out as I speak with award-winning wildlife photographer, Luke Massey. From the story of how Luke got into wildlife photography, some of the experiences and even challenging some of the ethics involved with this job, this episode is packed with tips and bits of advice for any future photographers. Luke then finishes pretending us the story of Wild Thinker, a project he and his partner have set up to agro-rewild a plot of land in North Spain. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the show. Luke, welcome to Into the Wild. It's a pleasure to chat to you. First things first, how are you? I'm very well. Um, we finally got all the technical issues sorted. I'm currently <laughs> sat in my car um, with beautiful views of the Picos de Europa, some cows grazing next to me, and uh, but rain and 50, 60 kilometre hour winds outside. So we'll make this work. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we, we'll get there. What I love about doing this show is when the listener is listening to it, they're like, God, this is so professional. And always, 10 minutes before, we're always like, right, walk over there, then you get signal. It's never as it seems when it comes out. Absolute panic stations. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, right, let's get into the episode. The first question that we always kick off into the wild with is, Luke, can you start by telling us who you are and what is it you do? Okay, yeah. I am Luke Massey. I'm a professional wildlife photographer and cameraman. And more recently, I've become, uh, I guess, a wannabe farmer slash agri-wilding person. Um, and yeah, so I've been doing photography for whoa, quite a long time now. I'm 29 and I picked up a camera when I was 12 years old, so 17 years, um, which sounds a bit ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, my pictures when I was 12 years old were pretty awful. Um, but, yeah, but yeah. let's blame the oh, equipment. Well, I can, I can. I think I had a. Well, the camera was alright, but I had an eighteen to fifty-five mil lens, which for any photographers they'll know. Unless you've got something very tame, it's not a very versatile lens for wildlife photography. Let's say. Absolutely no. I I can um I can appreciate that as someone that is getting into photography myself with probably exactly the lens you just said. Oh, okay. Well, you can you can specialize in uh, beautiful landscapes with tiny animals in them. oh lovely yeah I, yeah look at that bird in the way frame. over there yeah exactly <laughs> i promise you it's a kingfisher yeah <laughs> that, that slight speck over there i promise you is a thing um but yeah no I, I completely appreciate that now okay so you just said you've you were starting with photography when you were 12 years old so how did your love for wildlife and nature begin for you well my, my claim to fame 
is, and I don't know, I think this is true because my parents always told me, but my first word was tadpole. <laughs> um, obviously, I, I don't remember that far back, but I guess my parents, uh, my mum especially was an avid gardener. Although we didn't go on the most exotic holidays, um, we always went somewhere, you know, it wasn't a rat, sat around a pool. Yeah. It was kind of, yeah, go, going to normally France, to northwest France, to a farmhouse somewhere with fields mm. and trees and, and stuff like that. So I guess I just absorbed it through that. And because I grew up quite urban um, in a city just outside London, but I guess the, the countryside wasn't far away. Um, so I guess I always had some kind of greenery um accessible to me mm. um so that was yeah my first that i guess i was just passionate about wildlife very early on the actual reason for picking up a camera was because my sister was doing photography at college um and i just started stealing her camera when i was going out <laughs> on nature walks and cycle rides <laughs> Amazing. and i realized instead of just telling people about wildlife i could show them these small specks um that i could say was a kingfisher <laughs> or whatever um, and yeah, I just realized that I could use the camera as a tool for storytelling. And then as time went on, you know, it kind of overtook my studies. I got quite good GCSEs, but then you can tell when I passed my driving test and my <laughs> grades took a dive as did my time <laughs> at school. And yeah, I, I, I'd much rather prefer to be in a reed bed at Tring Reservoirs waiting for a marsh harrier to appear from its roost than sat in, you know, double biology or something like that. That's interesting what you just said there about like you'd rather show people or you found it easier to show people wildlife rather than just trying to talk about it. And it is that golden rule, isn't it, that seeing is believing or I think now that's more evolved to seeing is appreciating. And do you find that a lot with your work that it's always so much easier to get people on board if you can, whether it's live in action or whether it's a still photo, whether you can if you can just show them that moment? Yeah, because I think for most people, footage and photos, you know, straight away they're seeing it. Some people don't like reading um, or find it difficult to read. Whereas a photo, you know, you can get pretty much most people on Earth's attention by showing them a photo, be that of something beautiful or an atrocious scene of, you know, wildlife persecution or mm. illegal wildlife trade. And straight away you can wake people up with that. And I guess... I mean, I wasn't photographing the illegal wildlife trade when I was 12 years old, <laughs> but I recognised that quite early on that, yeah, instead, you know, people would listen to me because I guess I was a kid um, or they'd pretended to listen to me at least. But, you know, I, I could say, oh, I've just been on this walk and I saw, you know, four bullfinches, blah, blah, blah. And people are like, oh, okay, yeah. And But instead I could go back and say, I just went on this walk and look at the four bullfinches I saw. And as soon as someone mm. sees that picture, they're like, wow, that's an incredible bird. I didn't even know we had birds like that in the UK. So then that, I guess that was the trigger in my mind that was like, hang on, straight away I'm seeing people kind of wake up because they're seeing it, not in the flesh, but a photo of it. And that was my drive to use photography and now filmmaking as a kind of storytelling tool. And I, th I think this is a bizarre question because I, I, I'm asking this almost knowing the answer. Obviously you were a keen nature person, you were motivated by wildlife growing up as many of us are. But still with photography, why wildlife photography? Was that, was that because you just shared that interest or was there like, you, you know, because people go in photography for many different reasons, but was there something about yeah. wildlife that you really wanted to get? I guess, like I said, like you said, I'm, I'm already, I was already interested in wildlife. I don't really like people, so I wouldn't take photos of them. <laughs> we finally said it um, on the show. Finally, after 38 <laughs> episodes, someone said, I don't really like people. 
Yeah. Well, it's, it's the truth, unfortunately. Not, lots of people are very nice, but, you know, we're not doing a very good job of looking after this planet, so that means I don't like us that much. But, um, yeah, I did actually dabble in car photography, and I think that was just oh. a lingering... But, I mean, I'm not interested in cars at all now, um, but I guess it, maybe that's just a teenage boy thing. You know, I... I yeah. I was on... So, very randomly... The first thing I was really obsessed with was fish, you know, and I still am. Mm. But I don't do underwater photography because I'm not a good enough diver. Mm. Katie, my partner, is a dive instructor. She taught me to dive and I think on my eighth dive, she allowed me to take a camera and it was confiscated off before I even like submerged <laughs> pretty much. Um, so, yeah, I, I take a GoPro every now and again, but I don't really do wildlife, uh, underwater wildlife photography. Um, where's I going with that? Yeah, so cars. And, and then I guess there's a... So I was really into fish. Um, and actually I had a paper round from age 12 and then I used to buy buy fish and and coral weirdly with my paper round money and basically grow it on and breed fish in my bedroom where I had like loads of fish tanks my parents weren't best pleased but then I'd go on forums and have these strange men turning up at our house to buy various fish and corals <laughs> me. and, that, and that, that actually funded my uh, photography equipment in the end no way seriously yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very lucrative business, Ryan. Um, but maybe I should go back into it. It's, it's all completely completely legit. I was just going to say, if we do that, please make sure you are doing it responsibly and with the correct licence. Yeah, make sure you've got all the CITES permits. Yeah, I don't know about licences, but in, in terms of... I was basically doing captive breeding, I guess, when you look at it. So instead of people getting fish from the wild, mm. they were getting them out of Luke, Luke Massey's bedroom. So wait a minute, how old were you when you were propagating coral? Uh, that's like... I think I got my first I got my first fish tank really young, but I think I got my first like marine fish tank when I was like fourteen or fifteen. And you were successfully propagating coral at fourteen. It's not actually that difficult, but yeah. <laughs> don't even, but, but, don't even. Like, but, it's it's not if, it's if not making water, a cup of tea, is it? <laughs> no, no, I guess. But yeah, well, two things. So what I'd do is I'd I'd get hard coral, mm. um, like acroporas and stuff. Yeah. If anyone knows what those are and break bits off them and then glue them onto little like concrete cookies and then just put them in my fish tank for you know three months and they'd grow a bit bigger and then i'd sell them um or i'd go to the fish shop when they got their delivery and they didn't have a clue what they were getting um and yeah my 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 parents always used to joke because in the evenings you know i'm learning this with my son now and hopefully he gets to the stage but instead of a storybook, I'd have like an encyclopedia of fishes or something. Yeah. That's what I'd read yeah, when yeah. I'd spend. I, was a, oh, I still am, but I was a real geek. Anyway, this has gone off on a real tangent. <laughs> no, I'm loving on, this. Online, online fish selling. <laughs> and then, you know, there's, there's forums for everything. Then there was a car forum. So I joined a car forum. And then I realised locally to me there was people with fancy cars. And uh, yeah, I just said, oh, I need to build my... And I did have to build my portfolio. The only time I studied photography was at GCSE. And uh, my teacher was useless, basically, but we didn't really learn anything. Um, But I needed to get different pictures. So mainly it was wildlife. Uh, Ironically, you like this as well. And I wish I... I hope she's listening to this, Miss Kelly. Um, (laughs) She told me wildlife photography wasn't photography. Um, What? That's... uh, that's... uh, Quite early on. What does that even mean? well exactly who knows but anyway who knows where she is now but that's, anyway that's like saying air travel is not essentially travel like what what does that mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I just think she didn't like me much no but yeah so i did car, car photography for, for a bit and you know it was quite fun being a 16 year old people would turn up at my house in like a lamborghini or a ford gt and i'd jump in and we'd drive off to various spots where i actually went bird watching 
but I'd just get them to drive up and down past me and take pictures, and then they got the pictures, and I could practice photography. But that didn't last very long, literally, yeah, 16. Well, that's that's an incredible answer. That's really, that that's that's blown me away that you could do that. Was <laughs> that propagation work you're I talking about? I can't even about. remember. But what, is that? what was the original question? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what podcast is this? We were, um, but but the thing is, what the reason why I was so taken back with the coral propagation is because that's work I was doing in an aquarium. Uh, you know, I was oh, okay. I was doing the low down level work, but seeing it at a high level work as well. And we were, you know, in captivity breeding or propagating, sorry, bits of coral to pass on to different aquarium. So yeah, to, yeah, yeah. for you to say you're doing that at 14, that is what I would say. Well, that's specialist work. That's accurate level work at 14, which is, you know, it's, it's impressive, Luke. Well, <laughs> the, the, the internet is a wonderful thing to learn from. And even back then it was. And actually leading on from that, I ended up, because I was obsessed with fish and I always got told, and I've been told this by many, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. And I always tell people that. I know at the end of the podcast, you say, what, what advice do you give people? Yes. But I watched, uh, there used to be, and I don't know why they don't do them anymore. So if any commissioners are listening, get back on it. They used to do these brilliant, like 10 minute wildlife things. I can't remember what evening it was on, on BBC. And there was one called The Coral Gardener about this guy in Fiji that basically was doing what I was doing, but on actual coral reefs. Oh, wow. Um, and I just emailed him and I said, oh, what you're doing is great, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, I'm giving a conference in London next week. Uh, if you want to come like and listen. So I said, yeah, sure. It's, it was half term or something. So I went up there with my dad. This is when I was 16. Yeah. And at the end of the conference, he said to me, oh, well, if you ever want to come out to Fiji, you just got to fund your plane ticket and you can come as long as you like. Wow. Now, I don't think he realised who I was in terms <laughs> of like, if someone says that to me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move heaven and earth. <laughs> So, yeah, so I volunteered at a nature reserve from age 12 as well. And it was an old Victorian watercress uh, beds. It's actually really called Lempstead Springs. Really good for green sandpipers and stuff like that because the water never freezes. Wow. Um, so we did monthly work parties there where you had like, you know, 20, 30 volunteers came and they did different things on the reserve. But one of them was raking cress. Anyway, so I did a sponsored <laughs> watercress rake because um, the coral money I was getting in just wasn't enough to cover it. Um, <laughs> And I, I think I spent three days raking cress. And I remember the warden said to me, he was like, you've done very well here. I don't think people realise when they said they were going to pay you like a pound a heap of cress, how many you'd do. <laughs> you know, I did like 200 heaps of cress. The whole reserve was done, like raked all the cress up. Job done. Uh, the green sandpipers, very happy. Freshwater shrimps, loving life. Amazing. Um, anyway, and then I got a grant from the Prince's Trust. So I, I went to Fiji for a month when I was 17 um, and did that coral propagating that's that's just incredible like yeah it now it now makes sense now you've said all this it's like yeah of course now it's starting to like i'm seeing the picture no pun intended um <laughs> so wait okay so let's talk let, let, so wildlife photography this is this is your job yeah, this is what you, yes. you, you well, yeah yeah well this is one of many jobs that you you probably have um been involved in but i'm i'm keen to learn a bit about wildlife photography as someone that is getting into it myself um Every industry has its kind of highs and lows of challenges and perks and pros and everything like this. But what are some of the highs for wildlife photography? Uh, being, what is the word, egotistical, I guess winning awards would be the highs. Yeah. Well, I don't know. For me, yes and no. I like, I've, I'm very lucky I've been in some good like wildlife photography the year and stuff like that a couple of times. Um, obviously, that's... Uh, What's the word? If if I was like an accountant and won an award, what's the word? Like the accolade. That's like that's like a high, okay, I yeah. guess, getting in that. And and obviously every wildlife photogra- photographer, 
photographer wants to be in wildlife photography yeah you know that is the oscars of wildlife photography mm. so it's nice to be recognized in that way but actually the highs for me is being in nature and seeing the things i get to see yeah yes you know like some of the places i've been because of wildlife photography and the sites i've seen because of wildlife photography you know i i my partner katie she joined me for like the last three four years before we had our son um on some of the trips and and we reminisce sometimes you know because mm. you know we, we, we're very very much we don't take it for granted we know the opportunities that because of photography we were given lots of people never get to see that um so i guess that's the highs you know yeah like be, being on safari and not having to pay thousands of dollars to do it you know, i spent <laughs> three months in zambia following a leopard and her two cubs that was a pretty good big high that's amazing um, that's and i guess that's the answer i was expecting i think as well from you if i'm honest was, yeah. pro- was probably the environment yeah and and seeing things and stuff like stuff that you don't expect to see or behavior mm. you know i had a pang a pangolin outside my bedroom <laughs> when i was doing those leopards uh, as you do <laughs> just one of the best sentences anyone's ever said <laughs> <laughs> but i think it was the fifth record since 1937 for the whole of the South Luangwa National Park. Of their pervy pangolins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pangolins are very rare and hard to see. And then I had one, so that's a pretty big high. Um, and that, But then stuff just like being out, not really looking for anything and having a wolf cross your path. I didn't actually get a photo of that. That's, that's, that's another story. But I found a dead bison in, in Bishlovieta por- Forest in Poland. Mm. And I went back the next day and, uh, yeah, saw the wolves, but I didn't get a photo because they literally ran across in front of me. They, they had uh, the murderers of the bison. Um, but, yeah, highs like that, you know, there's countless. You know, you could do a whole podcast just on the, the amazing experiences that I've had. Yeah, and that must be that must be a moment as well there. You said that you, you weren't able to grab a photo, but that, that in itself must be... Obviously, at times, you're like, oh, I wish I got a photo, but obviously, that must be like a real high going i'm the only one that's just seen that and the only one that will see that yeah (laughs) you know i just thought something quite funny i got told by a a very great woman who is uh heavily involved in wildlife photography she helped me a lot early on and she actually said to me luke you'll never be one of the best wildlife photographers because you're too like passionate about wildlife and because of that you know like i probably if I didn't really care, but I still was a wildlife photographer, I probably would have got a picture of those wolves. Yeah. Because the adrenaline, I was all shaking and watching them. I was like, oh, amazing. And then, oh, I didn't do a picture. And then they were gone. I've just lost all of my future work. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, he's not very good wildlife photographer. But for me, I'm still like a little schoolboy in that. Iberian lynx, you know, that's mm. one of the most incredible creatures on earth. And I've worked with them a lot. And I've seen them, again, that's a big high, because, again, rarest cat on earth. And I've been very lucky to see them tons and tons of times over the last like six seven years i was down there last month just visiting a new estate mainly to meet the people that have taken over the estate but i just went for a walk on my own with my camera and the sun had just set and i was like ah oh, i haven't seen liberian lynx but okay turned around and all the magpies were going crazy so i knew a lynx was around and then when i turned back this lynx was just walking across in front of me and let's say that was like the 50th iberian lynx i've ever seen um I still, every time I get like tremors, shivers, mm. every time I get, I start shaking a bit with it. So I guess that, yeah, definitely they're the highs, the wildlife experiences. Forget the awards. I don't need to win another award, but I'd like to see an Iberian lynx. <laughs> I guess we could go super philosophical and just say the, the, the best shot are with the eyes. 
exactly. <laughs> the picture in the mind. Right? Picture in the mind and the experience. Um, well, let's flip the coin then. And I'm not going to use the word lows, but what are some of the challenges or some of the bits of wildlife photography that you're like, oh, God, this is the bit that kind of bugs me? Ethics, I guess, mm. first and foremost. I think there's a huge problem, but people are waking up to it more now. You know, the the as we've just said, you know, the, the animal, the subject should always come before your photo. Yeah. Um, and then and anytime I'm doing workshops, guiding on trips, that's what, always what I say. But unfortunately, still now. You know, the other day I got told there was a hide somewhere in Spain that they tether a live pigeon what? to a stick so that you can photograph a booted eagle. Now, any photographer going and paying money to do that needs to go check themselves out, basically. Yeah. And, and I guess ask themselves why what what are you doing wildlife photography for sorry i was going to say do you think that's something that like you said is starting to decrease uh yeah i think because of social media and stuff i think people are putting more pressure on people for it Mm. um uh, for like you know when a picture comes online now because stories like that are coming out a lot of people can see oh hang on you know if they've got that photo and it's there, that's how they got it, you know, and then they get questioned. So it, it's so tricky because there's a fine line, you know, with baiting. You know, I've seen a lot of American photographers find it bizarre that in Europe, you know, you can go to a baited hide and see stuff. Mm. Um, but my argument for that is, you know, it, it's such a tricky one because you can go to Finland, you know, and, and I have. I've guided in Finland to the bear hides and the and there's wolves, bears and wolverine at those hides, basically just coming for dead salmon and dog food that's left out for them. Now, is that bad? Mm. You know, are, are those animals reliant on it? Because that happens, you know, from April to September or something, I don't know, maybe longer, all year, pretty much every single day. But what's worse, not feeding those animals and letting them be hunted potentially or putting a value on them because, you know, you've got photographers coming from all around the world. So this is the other problem with the ethics mm. is that where do you draw the line on baiting? And I, I, that's something I haven't been able to answer either because what's the difference? Of course, there's a difference, but, you know, feeding your garden birds, okay, it's not a bear, but that's baiting. Yeah, and this is where we always get into this um, Alice in Wonderland maze of kind of moral. You know, as soon as we start to talk about morals, it, it gets very phasey because, you, you know, everyone holds different ethics and different morals. And it's exactly. it really it's yeah. it's tricky. And this is this is across every subject I think ever discussed in history, but especially with wildlife, because yeah. we're um, there's a part of it that doesn't have oh, a voice. It's, it's a deep, deep. Yeah, it's a yeah. Like you say, it's a maze. Mm. Flash photography. Another one, you mm. know, camera trapping is becoming really big. I've done it. Haven't done it for a few years now mainly because I broke all my equipment. But <laughs> I, I was using flashes, you know, plain flashes on nocturnal animals. And then I realised, you know, one example, and I can say this because I've, I've talked about it with people and I've suggested other people not to do it. And you learn from your mistakes in life anyway. You know, philosophical again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I had a, uh, a certain spot where a beaver was crossing loads. So I set up a camera and I got a lovely photo, but the beaver didn't cross that while I was there, so for another two weeks again. And the only reason it wouldn't have crossed is because of the flash, mm. in my opinion. So for me, like, I don't, I've never entered that photo into anything. I think it's on my website, but, you know, I, that for me was like, ah, I altered that animal's behaviour in a negative way through my work. So it goes completely against what I'm saying about, you know, animal before the photo. So I think everyone just needs to be a lot more honest mm. and a lot more 
you know, think about your actions. We're so philosophical today. What is it? It's I know. Are afternoon. we all right? Did you? Did we yeah. both have a coffee yeah. before <laughs> this show or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that is a really good point to bring up because I think there's there's two sides of this. There's the side to recognise a potential problem and a negative impact that's happening on the animal or the environment. There's also a side that we have to consider to not be afraid to get it wrong. Like you said, there's there's I don't think there's millions of people out there intentionally doing the wrong thing but there are probably many people accidentally doing the wrong thing and i think it's sometimes okay to go i'm really sorry guys i didn't think of it like that and learn i think this is where we get that balance of going don't be afraid and that also comes on to the side of how we deal with that when we see something happening how do we converse that how do we relay that to the organization and person i guess some people could argue you know the power of that photo okay that was a beaver so it's probably not the most powerful photo but let's say um i can't remember his name the guy that just won wildlife photographer of the year last year mm. or this year that was a um siberian tiger on a camera trap with flash now i don't know how affected that cat was by the flash but now that picture is going to be seen by i think two million people or more i think that's like what wildlife photography gets in terms of an audience over the year of its exhibition yeah and how many people might not have known about the plight of the siberian tiger without seeing that photo mm. you know this is the problem you know this <laughs> is where we get on the moral it. isn't it this is where because, it's a constant yeah, balance exactly, yeah. because you know i i i again this is a story that i've been guilty of first time when i was in africa I, ne- I never really enjoyed it that much in zambia but you know flash you know going on a night drive with a big um flashlight to see what you can see mm. and everything's pretty much petrified um and i saw that quite early on i always thought it's pretty rubbish for photography anyway so i wasn't that involved in it but two years ago i was in this um lower zambezi and there's a camp there called chiawa safaris and they've got two camps and the guy who's in charge of it he um he only lets his guides use lights. You can do a night drive, but you have to have a red filter on it. Okay. And it was incre- incredible to see the difference in animal behaviour. Like, incredible. I did a little film on it. Because, you know, I'd seen Jennet, Civet, all these kind of common nocturnal animals in Zambia before with a white light. And they literally look at the light, boom, they're gone mm. normally. Red light, you know, just going about their business, doing a poo, foraging, <laughs> eating. Like, literally not affected by it at all. And that for me, I was like, you know, you don't need to see, you know, that's when a photographer, most people that go on safari, okay, you get your photo, but you're not a photographer on, let's say, 80% of safari guests. So you don't need to shine a big white light on Mm. an animal. Especially when they're doing a poo. Well, (laughs) that too, give them some privacy. (laughs) Um, But it was, it was really interesting to see that behavioural, behavioural change Mm. um, and how the animals were kind of fine with the red light. And yeah, so it's it's very hard on ethics um, and morals, and you know it's an education thing, and I guess waking people up to it in some way w- without being a preacher, and that's why I'm trying not to be here. That's why I'm saying, you know, I've done it. I've used a white light, but now I've used a red light, and I see, you know, you can see the difference. And this is what I mean: it's recognizing the mistakes, like you said, and and being open about them, because it's without that, we can't expect others to join that kind of a parade of kind of change but there's there's crazy statistics you know like i think if you shine a leopard a shine a leopard shine (laughs) a light in a leopard's eyes um it's something like that cat cannot regain accurate night vision for another 30 minutes after oh wow i mean that's insane that's a long time um so yeah that's that's just one thing 
Um, and then like, um, yeah, and, and supposedly like back in the day when they were catching game, they used to use white lights to shine in Impala's faces so they could grab them. Mm. You know, <laughs> when you hear all these stories, you're like, what the hell? And now we're using it for ecotourism. Anyway, we're going off. And <laughs> this is the danger we're talking to but, but We'll let's... be talking about fish keeping one minute. and uh, <laughs> Now on to vintage cars again. Um, but yeah. we will bring this round though, because this actually goes hand in hand with my next question, which is, you know, this year, we've said this a thousand times on this podcast, that especially this year, people have got really into wildlife. And with that, naturally comes photography whether it's on with your professional camera on your iphone with a clip-on lens it doesn't matter it has started so what would be some of your if you could give like two bits of advice to wildlife photographers who are just getting started who are maybe a couple years in what would you say to remember i always say go to your local park or something like you know like your fish or whatever you know where people feed the ducks because Mm. i get lots of emails from people basically asking that question and I was very lucky that I already had some kind of understanding and knowledge of wildlife, but such a huge part of wildlife photography is knowing the behavior of the animal. Yeah. You know, if you want to get certain shots, again, ethically, if you don't want to affect the animal with field craft and stuff like that, but also just knowing the behavior and certain animals are difficult and more flighty. Um, So if you go down to your park, you know, those, those animals there, the ducks, the seagulls, whatever, they're used to people. They're not going to fly away from you Mm. and you, also need to know your equipment so you can practice with your equipment on an animal that's wild that's not going to be scared of you you're not really going to affect it in any way and you can play around with different techniques you know slow shutter speed to do panning and a bit of movement um different testing autofocus and focusing and all that playing with light you can go at loads of different times a day and you know mm. there's going to be wildlife there backlighting and stuff like that so i guess I don't know how many tips I've given there, but no, that's actually no, no, that's it, actually yeah, really you know. that you have given a wide range of tips in a very concise way. Actually, that's already I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I didn't think of that doing that. Um, there's another element of the job that I think we were keen to discuss, and that's it's very topical in the last few years, and that's the carbon footprint of wildlife photography. How do you deal with that? I bought a farm and planted loads of trees on it. there you go right end of question (laughs) yeah yeah, we'll come to that later um no it it is a really difficult one and actually saying so in 2021 i've said i'm not unless it's like a family emergency i'm not going to do any flying Mm. and quite funny just as i I haven't got wife at the house at the minute hence doing this in my car um, i just saw an email from people i guide for asking if i can go and guide in chile next year and i'm not going to because i don't want to fly next year and that's not because of coronavirus Mm. Um, I just want to see if I can do it. Yeah. Um, and it, it's such a tricky one because, yeah, how do you deal with it? And this is a conversation I've had with lots of different people. And one case example, I guess, is the Pantanal, the Brazilian Pantanal. Mm. It's a place I've been lots again, so very lucky. And I guide there or have guided there. And this year, because of coronavirus, not many people have gone. And I'm sure you've seen, but the whole place is basically every year there's fires. But this year, the fires have been yeah. especially bad. And I assume one of the reasons, and in the main tourist area, you know, you know, there's Jaguar, there's awful pictures of, you know, completely burnt tapir and Jaguar and mm. stuff. It's disgusting. And I'm sure one of the reasons for that is because there was no tourists. So the ranchers and the locals, and you can't really, no, you can blame them. It's awful. That's, I'm not going to say you can't blame them. But, you know, they're seeing no income from tourism. Um, and there's nothing, you know, they see it. Well, what do you need to protect this? There's no tourists at the minute, so we'll burn it. Because I've seen some of the arguments, you know, oh, it will grow back. Well, yeah, it will. But those animals won't come back to life mm. that you've burned. Um, so it's a tricky one because, of course, 
me flying there with eight guests is a carbon footprint. But then if you didn't go there, you know, what, what happens to that wildlife? Mm. Because I, I don't because people argue and they say, oh, you know, um, well, you know, 40 years ago, people weren't going there. Unfortunately, as we all know, the earth, our world has changed a lot in the last 40 years. And now, unfortunately, we do need to go. Well, not unfortunately, we do need to go and visit places to give them a value and give the wildlife a value. Yeah. Um, and that means having a horrible carbon footprint. What I would say is, you know, if you are going to go and do it, and I'm not going to go and do it next year, but if you are going to go and do it, think about your carbon footprint. And if you're going there, do, yeah, you, you know, there are lots of companies now that you can offset with. Um, do something else in your life that, I don't know, you know, if you're going to fly somewhere and you eat meat as well, how about if you're going to do a flight, you don't eat meat for a month or something? I don't know. Yeah, but that's, I think that's a good way of doing it. Yeah, because it's, like you said, there are elements to certain jobs, like your your job and other, you know, other wildlife and nature jobs that does involve travel. And without it, it can have negative impacts, not only on the environment itself, but the attitude of wildlife and nature. But there are many things that we can all do in our lives that we all should be doing, but then we can also consider. And it could be as easy as just changing your energy supplier. Do you know, it could be exactly, something like yeah, that. I mean, there's, there's so many. I think the main thing is the fact that if you can recognize you're doing and you're creating a carbon footprint that could be quite large mm. and you're willing to do something about it you know that's a step in the right direction um so as long as as long as people can see that um i i mean i'm because i'm not going to tell people to stop traveling there's lots of very simple things you can do that can reduce your carbon footprint if you are flying to brazil or zambia or chile or wherever the last thing we're going to talk about is a project of yours um, and yours and your partner Katie's, I think, um, I'm right in saying, yes. is uh, is uh, Wild uh, wild Thinker. Now, do you want to tell us what this is? Uh, a big mistake. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, Katie and I are, like I say, we count ourselves very lucky in terms of like what we've done in our careers. Katie writes and stuff, so she was able to accompany me, accompany me on some of those trips and you know i've seen a lot in the world but we both wanted to slow down Mm. and we both realized we didn't need to be in the uk to do that and i guess i am a wildlife photographer and a cameraman but yeah nature came first and i've always had this passion to kind of create some kind of nature reserve um and on the money i earn as a wildlife photographer that was impossible to do in the uk Mm. um and yeah, we didn't need to be in the UK. So we, we really liked Spain from doing Iberian links and stuff like that in southern Spain, but we didn't want to be in southern Spain. Um, so we came and looked up here in northern Spain to Asturias and we fell in love straight away. You know, you've got the incredible rugged coastline of Asturias and then the Bay of Biscay. And then you've got the Picos de Europa Mountains, you know, 15, 20 kilometres inland. So we've got the best of both worlds, um, amazing wildlife. And you've got bears, wolves, wildcat. Um Egyptian vulture, griffin vulture, oh, wow. bearded vulture. You know, I'm showing off. Yeah, There's yeah, lots of yeah. amazing wildlife. It beats, um, it so beats my magpies and pigeons. <laughs> we got those too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically we rented for two years um, and then we started looking around to see if there was a farm or something we could buy and that's when we found Wild Finker. Mm. Um, so it's basically a dilapidated, and that's probably saying it lightly, <laughs> old cattle farm um, with numerous buildings that are falling down that we've kind of haphazardly renovated one that we can live in mainly because we were having our child as well so we thought we couldn't probably live in a tent for the first few months of his life (laughs) 
and uh, yeah, and then now we're coming up to ten hectares of land, so it's not huge. That's um, a nice size, though. For yeah, and for what we want to do at the minute is, you know, we are documenting it in photography and film. We're going to do a film series next year on the whole thing and the surrounding area and the people and the other wildlife that isn't just on Wild Finca. Mm. But for us, Wild Finca, you know, it was very much a passion project to begin with um, that we want to show people that, okay, we've got 10 hectares, so it's a bit easier. But you can do agri-wilding or rewilding. I mean, we're calling it kind of agri-wilding slash rewilding on a small scale in your garden just we're doing it on 10 hectares mm. and again it's a bit like what we said i just want people to wake up and kind of see what we're doing asturias is quite in an interesting situation because it has incredible wildlife but i always tell people it's like 30 years behind the uk in terms of wildlife well let's say a thousand years behind the uk <laughs> in terms because it's still got bears and bears and wolf <laughs> but in terms of birds which is my thing you know we've still got red back shrike and they breed at Wild Finca, and that's kind of my big bird that wow. I love. Well, it's not a big bird, it's a very small bird, but it's a bird that I absolutely love. Mm. And it's kind of an indicator species. You know, they eat insects, and when they start disappearing, it's because there's no food and no habitat. And mm. I think the last pair of bred in the UK in 1984. Oh, God. Or something okay. like that. And uh, in the in Asturias, you know, I can see that trend. You know, there's, there's this weird kind of green revolution going on, part two, where scrub and habitats being removed and they call it like the green paradise and it is beautiful but lots of it's just overgrazed fields that offers very little for biodiversity mm. and i guess i i want to stop that um and and kind of build a community that you know wild finca is just one thing at the minute of 10 hectares and people have said to me oh you know you should be working on like a landscape scale and that's just unrealistic for me because one i want to kind of be in control of it and two I'm never going to be able to afford to have a thousand hectares or more. Mm. And imagine if our aim, Katie and I, is is to inspire people to have wild thinkers across Europe, you know, small holdings in the UK that become a wild thinker. And if you add that up, you know, straight away, if you have 500 10 hectare reserves, then there you go. You've got 5000 hectares of little biodiversity hotspots around Europe. Um and for us, I guess, we, we thought this could work and it could get people passionate. And then we um, we actually had some land come up for sale next to us that we'd kind of been promised at a low price and that we'd be the only people to buy it. And then the seller turned around and said, oh, yeah, it's, it's basically sold. Um, you've got until Monday to decide if you're going to sell it, if you're going to buy it. And this is the price. And we're like, what the hell? Oh, and God. then we found out it was like an in- intensive farmer and this land rip literally like cuts into Wild Finca. So it basically ruined the whole idea that we're trying to do here. And unfortunately, because of this year of coronavirus, as, as, as have many people struggled financially. So we just didn't have the resources. You know, mm. we already had a bank loan turned down. Um, so we just couldn't. So I thought, you know, the only thing to do is do a crowdfunder. And I set up a crowdfunder... Um, thinking, you know, we might get two grand and that would help things along. And we hit the target. We got 20,000 quid oh, wow. um, from an amazing amount of people that secured the land. And straight away, that's just given me the complete trigger. I mean, it's helped when I, when I say I'm not going to fly next year because it's given me the complete push that, mm. you know, people are, well, now financially invested in it. You know, OK, the money goes to us to buy the land. But, you know, the fact that I think it's 537 people gave up their hard-earned cash in this year of all years... Um, to us to have that faith in us to to kind of continue on with this project and make it happen has like completely motivated me more than I more motivation than I ever needed really <laughs> um, and so that I mean it's incredibly exciting to have people there and 
involved in it in that way and I can't wait to show people it in the flesh. Um, but don't fly, come over on the ferry or drive to so you have a lower carbon footprint, of course. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was, you know, that's, that's wild thinker. I mean, the aim is we're kind of, we don't want to alienate local people. What we want is local people to kind of look back and be like, you know, 50 years ago, we were doing what we're basically doing on Wild Thinker. You know, we've got Shalda sheep, which were first written about in 27 BC. Oh, wow. Because some tribe, I can't remember what, the Asta something tribe, anyhow, had these amazing um, capes, I think, or robes made out of the Shalda sheep. So they're a small little rugged mountain sheep. We've got 10 of those. Um, and two Astacon ponies. Astacon ponies are, again, they're the one of the oldest horse breeds in history. And Pliny the Elder, the Roman naturalist, wrote about them and their strange gait. Um, so, you know, we're, incredible. We, they are proxy, proxy species, but they're also ancient species that have always been entwined in this part of the world. Yeah. Um, so we've got them on the land and we move them around kind of every every few days to kind of let stuff recover but you know in all honesty we don't really know what we're doing neither of us have any qualification <laughs> in rewilding and uh, there's a lot of trial and error today i was taking down a fence um because that i put up you know when we first moved here and what's quite interesting i listened to dave barker when he was on your podcast yes. and he said you know what we recommend and I, i've spoken to rebecca hoskin who he works with a lot as well and said you know just sit back and watch the land mm. and for various reasons um i mean due to work and and my son being born you know that's kind of ha what we have done accidentally as well we we haven't done anything to the land for a year 15 months or so and, and wildlife has blossomed but what is important is to have that mosaic of habitats so that's why we've got those grazing species in now um and you know redback shrike they love dung beetles and i got so so excited i think so i got the the astacon ponies pliny and pear obviously pliny the elder <laughs> and pear because we have a really big old pear tree um, but yeah, I think I got them on my birthday, um, which is middle of September. And within a week, I was trying to tame them. They're much tamer now, but they were completely wild when we got them. They were born up in the mountains and they're only like six months old. Um, but yeah, within a week, I was sat kind of trying to just talk to them, you know, yeah. get them tame. Um, and had piles of their dung around me. And we don't worm them around, I think. And I had dung beetles clattering past my head. Um, and landing on the poo and burying into the poo within a week. That's amazing. And for me, you know, that, that question earlier on, like, what's the high of wildlife photography? That is the high of wild thinker. Like, dung yeah. beetles going absolutely nuts for a load of Astacon poo. I mean, it's just for me, I was just like, yes, this is it. This is what we want. And, you know, the redback shrikes haven't even arrived yet. But come May next year, I'm going to be sat by a part. Well, maybe not sat right next to it because I might scare away the redback shrikes. But... <laughs> You know, I'll be sat with my binoculars looking at a pile of Astacon poo and the dung beetles feasting on it and watching a redback shrike swooping down and grabbing them and going feeding his chicks. Well, Luke, Wild Finger sounds incredible. And I would really, you know, I've been really motivated from everything you've just said about your land. And, and it's really inspiring to hear you actually say, you know, we don't really know what we're doing. And I think there's no shame in saying that. That's actually admirable to say you know we're achieving yet we're not actually 100% sure what we're doing but nature seems to know and it is you know things are improving um, and you know the last question that I'm going to ask on the podcast um, is quite simply if you could just pass on one bit of advice which you passed on so much advice on this episode already but if you could just pass on one more bit to everyone on the planet about nature or wildlife what would you pass on? Oh, I think I'm empty of advice now <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I'm trying to think what I've said already absorb it 
be be mm. in nature. I see so many people walking around with headphones on or their you know eyes glued to a screen. And I think this whole coronavirus and lockdown and stuff, it does see more people are waking up. You know, and they say, yeah. "Oh, bird song's louder." I don't think bird song is louder. I just think people are noticing it a lot mm-hmm. more. And, you know, nature is there. It's unfortunately reducing in some areas, but it is a healer. Um, it helps with so many things, you know. Yeah. So I think just get out there and absorb it, whether you live in central London or, you know, the middle of nowhere. There's nature near you. Go out and, and listen. Open your eyes. Listen. Get up early. Go listen to the dawn chorus in the spring. Mm. Man, there's nothing better than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great bit of advice. And I think everyone listening now would, I think we're learning it. And I think we're starting to understand it more. Um, and we still need to understand it even further. I think that point, it's um, so easy to get distracted, as we've said on the podcast before. But just remembering that point um, can really, like you said, have the a huge amount of benefits to everything. Um, Luke, this has been a wonderful chat. And thank you so much for your time on Into the Wild. Um, from your advice about photography, coral propagation, which we didn't know we were going there, um, and hearing about yeah. the the pros, the challenges, and then also the wonderful work that yourself and your partner Katie are doing on Wild Thinker. It sounds incredible, and I cannot wait to see the developments in the next, well, even next year. So it's something to look forward to. Um, I wish you the best for the rest of the day, and wish you a Merry Christmas. And well, but also, yeah. well, I say that on this yeah. point of recording. Feliz Navidad. Yeah, but, <laughs> yes, yeah, Feliz Navidad. Um, but obviously, this will probably come out in January. So, you know. Oh, Feliz Año. Feliz Año. What is that? Is that Happy New Year? Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New I Year. Think. There yeah. you go. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show, Luke. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I hope, I, you know what? Maybe I'll get the ferry and drive up and see Wild Finger in a year's time. Yeah, well, we're just an hour from Santander, Ryan, so yeah, the more the merrier. And then that is a genuine thing, you know, we've got our social medias, obviously, at WildFinker and our website's wildfinker.com, but please do get in touch, you know, on our website we've written that, like, if you know what you're doing, come and help us, give us advice, <laughs> or just c- c- come come visit, you know, get involved. Absolutely. The, the, like I say, the more the merrier, and, and we really do want this to be a big movement, and you know, rewilding as itself is growing hugely, but yeah. Anyway, you've closed the podcast and I'm rambling on. Still, so <laughs> it's lovely. Off. <laughs> lovely to chat, Luke, and we'll keep in touch. Cool. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Luke is working on, you can do so on Instagram and Twitter at L Massey Images. Don't forget you can now become a part of Into the Wild's Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Into the Wild podcast and gain access to exclusive shows. You can also get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello, share some thoughts on an episode or tell me what you guys want to hear about next. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life. <laughs>